I'm Joanne Hegemeyer, and um, I'm part of the teaching team. Ha! <laughs> All right. So this morning, um, in order to really get into the, pip- the politically charged atmosphere of this morning's passage, um, this is what I want you to do. I want you to think of examples of uh, situations where believers are pinched between living a life of faith, honoring God, and also dealing with the laws of the land. Can you think of any situations? All right, go ahead. What, what are you thinking of? Oh, actually, this is a different kind of a church. <laughs> you could say something controversial. Our hair may catch on fire, but the Holy Spirit will flood us with living water. The flu vaccine. All right, yeah. This is a, often a matter of faith and, and ethics and everything. Yeah, and there are laws that wrap themselves around that. You are so right. What, I think of another one. Okay. Teaching in the public schools. Guess what word we can never say? Like, maybe we could say it in Spanish, and we might get away with it, right? All right, to think of another one. Anything? Oh, there are so many. Come on, guys. <laughs> Gosh, and today's thing is all about taxes, too. <laughs> I mean, I actually thought of a few. David was like, no. Nah. Um, but, but laws about abortion. What about that? Laws about gender and sex. What about that? Okay? There's, there's a lot we could go into. We know that there are situations where believers are really pinched. They're pinched between living a life of faith, honoring God as best we know how, and dealing with the laws of the land. And now, I want you, I actually kind of want you to be on maybe only a one-alarm fire or two-alarm fire because I don't want you re- running screaming from the room, but I do want you to feel that feeling that tension, if you're going to be able to really get what was going on in today's passage. So, so far, uh, Jesus had managed to stir people up from the moment he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay, so let's just review what's happened so far. The people laid their cloaks out as a carpet for Jesus, and there was no hiding what they meant. He was a king, and they knew it. But they also waved palm branches. And remember, that was a symbol of freedom, of being freed from uh, uh, oppression, and captivity, and they were saying, we're going to be freed from Rome now that Jesus is here. Uh, They even sang psalms to Jesus as Messiah. I mean, that was really controversial. Uh, Jesus cleansed the temple, claiming that this was his father's home. All right, that stirred the city up. He established that his authority came from the same place that John the Baptist's authority came from. And that's because the religious rulers answer his question. When they asked him a question, he asked them a question. By the way, just as a parenthesis, if you ever want to have get yourself by a little time in one of those kind of conversations and someone asks you one of those, I'm going to nail you to the wall questions, just ask him another question. Jesus did it all the time. It worked so great. Anyway, so I come back to today. His authority comes from God himself, same as John the Baptist. And then he told a very familiar story, which I loved how uh, Bill worked with that story last week. He told a story about a vineyard in which he was saying that these religious rulers, they have no authority at all. 
In fact, they're working against the one who does have authority, God himself. So he'd stirred everybody up. Now listen, the people were eating this up with a spoon. They loved it. This was like a ticker tape parade with Jesus in town. They loved it to death. But the religious leaders, they were infuriated by Jesus' indictment of them and their plot to kill him because he had dragged that right out into the open. Now, they'd been trying to weaken his power base because he had a strong one. They were trying to manipulate him with these carefully loaded questions. And they were, they were hoping either Jesus is going to incriminate himself and then we'll get him, or at the very least, he's going to make himself unpopular and then nobody will care what we do to him. So, I mean, it's a pretty good plan when you think about it. But so far, it had been a total bomb. They had egg on their face every time they interacted with him. Jesus had managed to turn the tables every single time. Uh, And and each time, his power base increased. And they looked like, well, they kind of looked like idiots. So, insanely, they thought they were going to try it again. Um, Even though he'd called them out on their willingness to kill the Son of God himself just to keep hold on to their power. But see, the thing is, they thought they'd landed on a really ingenious plan, so explosive, so decisive, that Mark used a verb that's found nowhere else in the whole New Testament. That's interesting. It's right here in this passage. The word is agriusosin. It means entrap. And in Koine Greek of Jesus' day, this is what people did when they tried to trap an animal to eat it. Or, or trap a fish. So basically, Jesus was their prey, and Mark was calling them out on that. But to pull it off, the Sanhedrin had to find the right people. Now, the Sanhedrin itself, this was, you know, the religious ruling board. The Sanhedrin itself had a few Pharisees on board, but just a couple. Mostly they were Sadducees. The Pharisees were the super um, orthodox, conservative, religious type people who were pro-Israel. We might call them Zionists today. And the Sadducees were the more intellectual, more secular people. And as a rule, they also had a little bit more money. Uh, But to pull this plan off, they were going to have to have Pharisees. So they found some Pharisees who were willing to do this, and they also found a group called the Herodians. Now, you can guess, just by their name, the Herodians were the royalists. They were like pro-Herod, uh, pro-Rome, and ordinarily, Pharisees and Herodians would hate each other to death, but they hated Jesus more. So they were willing to team up and create a, a delegation. So we're going to tackle this passage in three divisions. And we're going to come up with three basic life principles and then some ideas on how to live out uh, those principles. So here we're going to go with the trap that they set, the teaching that Jesus gave, and the truth underneath the teaching. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Oh, Lord, our God, uh, we're really thankful that you inspired Mark to record all this because we find ourselves in the same situation just about every day. We are really pinched here, God, and we need something from you to help us to live with integrity as your people in a really tough world. And so we pray this in full faith that you have something for us this morning. Amen. All right, so let's just read the passage. It's not that long. Uh, Then they uh, they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him, And what he said, and they came to him and said to him, teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one. 
For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought him one. Then they said to him, Whose, he said to them, Whose head is this? And whose inscription? And they answered, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. All right, so we're going to go into the trap. This was a very strange delegation that the Sanhedrin had sent. And I'm thinking that they must have, you know, first of all, they, they must have gone around and said names because mostly they, they didn't hang in, in each other's circles at all. Then after they got that over with, they said, you know, one of us has got to be a spokesman because we can't all talk. We'll just, whoever it is, you go in the front and we'll all be right behind you, man. So they found somebody who was especially good at manipulation. He was a manipulation master because his opening strategy was to create a situation where Jesus would be forced to declare what he really thought. And here's how he did it. The first thing he did was curry favor. And he began with what sounded like an affirmation of Jesus' credentials. Remember they had tried to undermine his credentials before? Now they were like, oh, teacher. Because the word that they used was recognized in Jesus' time as someone who taught the things of God with such power and authority that they had created a gathering. So they were like, teacher. We recognize it. The next thing they did was try to curb Jesus' response. And now this is how they did they put it out there. Jesus is sincere. He's not afraid to speak the truth. And he isn't concerned with other people's opinions. Instead, with courage and conviction, Jesus taught the way of God in accordance with truth. Now, what the spokesman was doing was basically announcing to the whole crowd, to anybody who was listening, that Jesus was about to deliver a controversial teaching. And if Jesus didn't already have a crowd around him, there would be people who were like lining up. Ooh, yeah, we want to hear a controversial teaching from Jesus. So he was setting him up. He said, I know about you. You're not going to worry about who gets mad at you. You're not going to worry if everybody says, okay, forget it. We're not going to follow you anymore. You're not worried about any trouble that you might cause. We know that about you already. You cleansed the temple. We know who you are. So you're going to tell the truth regardless of the consequences. Now, you can see it, right? You can see the manipulation going on. Jesus was going to have to weigh in on this politically explosive issue, and uh, there was no way out of it because it was public now. Everybody had gathered around. Now, just let's just stop a minute. Can you think of any noteworthy Christians last year or so who were in an interview that started out so nice, and we're just getting to know you on, on TV, you know, and then they were maneuvered into a question about a politically explosive issue. Can you think of anybody? Can you think of Chick-fil-A? Yeah? Can you think of a couple others? There have been a couple others in the last few years who have had the very exact same, and they, and they were blindsided. Because it was such a nice interview and really getting to know each other. And, oh, finally a Christian gets to be on TV and talk about moral things. And then they got the skewer. Well, that's what this guy was doing. 
They were trying to control the narrative. They were asking, is it lawful? So they were trying to get Jesus to say a yes or no, is it lawful situation, thing, issue. Now, lawful was a loaded word because it could have mean that it was, is it legal? Is it legal according to state law? But inside that could also mean, is it required by God's law? Okay, but it goes on because it could also be a law in terms of oral law that the Pharisees were teaching and that the religious rulers were supporting. Or could it mean, uh, is it moral law in line with God's character and with his core? So what did that even mean? Is it lawful? Already they were making the ground murky. They were controlling the narrative. And Mark had already recorded a number of times when this subject had come up. For example, uh, the Pharisees had come up and said, you know, is it lawful for the disciples to be plucking grain on a Sabbath and eating it? Is that lawful? Uh, then Jesus asked them, well, is it lawful that David ate bread that was only supposed to be for Levites? Hmm. That's an impasse. Jesus asked, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? To kill or to save? And then he healed somebody. Oh, okay. Then John the Baptist He just said it straight out to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And then the Pharisees asked Jesus, well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I thought, Julie, if you haven't heard Julie's uh, sermon on that, you need to go to the website and listen to it. It was fantastic. All right. So is it lawful? They're trying to control the narrative, and the controversial subject was taxes. But here's why that was controversial. I agree with you. April 13. But it wasn't even like that. The poll tax was the issue. The Jews actually had to pay three kinds of taxes to the Romans. They had to pay the farm tax. They had to pay an income tax. And they had to pay a poll tax. That was just for existing. Now, already for the last 30 or 40 years, maybe 50 years, um, the Jews had already been under these heavy, heavy tributes because Herod the Great had this huge building program. And he also kept lavish palaces. And he had to have an army because he was a very unpopular guy. And lots of people wanted his stuff. So that took a lot of money. So he laid these heavy tributes on the people. And do you know that he exacted so much money out of them that he actually gave it back twice, two different times in history, because the people were at just at that point of totally rebelling. So he was like, here, I'll give you a gift. And that kept him quiet for a little while. You remember that when Jesus was born, Luke talks about a census right? Well, that was so they could count all the Jewish people so they could have this poll tax. And that's what it actually was called in Koine Greek, the kensen, the census tax or the poll tax. When Herod the Great died, all over Judea, there were uprisings and people were saying, you got to get rid of all these taxes. Uh, But the taxes didn't go down. Then when Jesus was about 12 years old, uh, Judea came under direct Roman administration. And at that time, when that happened, there was a guy. Now, this is so interesting. There was a guy named Judas, and he lived in Galilee. And he decided, we need an insurrection. So he had an insurrection. And he said, we're getting rid of the taxes. And, of course, everybody was on board with that. So he led this insurrection. What he wasn't counting on was how good the army was at killing people. And they put the insurrection down. They found Judas, and he went to the cross. Now, Jesus was about 12 years old. So at the time of this question, that was only like what? 
not even 20 years before, everybody remembered Judas and the insurrection and how he went to the cross on the tax issue. Just put that in your minds. Trying to get enough money to pay for these taxes was a major cause for bandits on the open road because they would shake travelers down. Travelers usually traveled with money because they had to pay for their stuff, so they would have enough money to pay these taxes because if you didn't pay your tax, the first thing that happened to you was that your property got taken away from you, and then you had to go to prison. So it was easier and better to just steal money so you could avoid that, so you could pay your taxes, than it was to not pay it. And now you know why telling the story of the Good Samaritan was such a smart idea on Jesus' part, because this was real life for these people. This is what they dealt with every day. And you know the setup. If Jesus said no, well, the Herodians had him on sedition, and he'd go to the cross. But if he said yes, the people would go, and then the Sanhedrin could do with Jesus whatever they felt like doing. So here's our first truth. Your determination and my determination to live by faith will be tested. Because Jesus really was a teacher who spoke with power and authority. He really was sincere. He really did always tell the truth. Jesus, in fact, was the truth. He was God's way. He was the source and sustenance of life itself. And so he was a magnet for this kind of testing and trapping. And when you and I, who have the spirit of Jesus within us, and we're living by faith, we need to expect this. We need to expect getting pinched between the world's values and God's values, between the world's laws and God's laws, between the culture of Jesus and the culture that surrounds us. We should expect it. The question that we need to ask ourselves, because we're going to come up often, what we're going to have to do or say is going to be controversial in some way. It just is. So we have to ask ourselves, what does my response to a test reveal about my life of faith and my commitment to God's way? What does it reveal? Now let's go to the teaching. Jesus saw right through the spokesman's strategy. He had, of course, the Holy Spirit. He saw right through it. He saw the hypocrisy of it. And so he took control over what was happening. This is just masterful what he did. First of all, he got rid of the whole trap idea and instead made it a test. And he said, um, you know, they were setting it up as a trap. You know, he's their prey. Jesus recast it. He said, how come you're coming to me with this test? Now, the Greek word for the, the word that Jesus used, the Greek word here means a trial in which you ascertain the quality of something, like a person's character or vir- virtue. And by using this word, Jesus recast himself as one being tested for purity. Why would that be important? Remember that this is Passover week, and Jesus is the Lamb of God. And the lamb must be spotless and without blemish. He recast the religious delegation as examiners because, of course, you could not bring a lamb to sacrifice until it had passed the examiner's test. They had to verify it was without blemish. You see what he did? I mean, it's just masterful. So now he was forcing them to find him completely pure, 
and worthy as the Lamb of God. He didn't say Lamb of God, but that's what was happening. The second thing he did was to make them take responsibility. In their question, I don't know if you caught this, in their question, the spokesman used the word we to include the delegation, the surrounding crowd, everybody who's asking, the disciples, and Jesus himself. Jesus put it back onto them. They had fashioned themselves as leaders, as the authority over all things religious and over all the people who, had, who lived in Judea, but surely the Jews. So he made them take responsibility by asking them to produce the denarius. Now that sounds pretty innocuous, right? Like when you were reading it, you were thinking, oh yeah, sure, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Just fish around in your pocket, pull out a coin, let's just settle this. But actually, the denarii had the image of Caesar imprinted on it with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, here's the bad part, the divine Augustus. Got it? Caesar considered himself a god. So many conservative Jews felt that it was idolatry to even look at a denarius, right? Because it had an idol on it, let alone hold it, let alone have it. In fact, it was said that if a denarius was lying on the ground, they wouldn't even pick it up because, of course, it had an idol on it. And a denarius was a day's wages. Like, even if I even see a quarter on the ground, I'm going to pick it up. (laughs) But they wouldn't even pick up a denarius. Jesus was saying to them, this is your question. You take ownership of it. You bring out your own coin, which is the value of the poll tax. You tell me what's on there. Now, I doubt the delegation had talked about that. What if if he makes us get out of denarius? What are we going to do? I'm sure that they had not talked about that. So did the Pharisees have any denariuses on them in their robe? My guess is no. So now the Pharisees are looking to the Herodians. You got a denarius? Like, how are we, what are we going to do? Now, I think they fished around in their robes, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, I got one. And I'm sure the Pharisees were like, okay, no, no, show them the denarius. Okay. So already, and I'm sure the people were watching this. Like, and so the ground is shifting a little. Their ingenious, explosive, decisive plan is not working out that well so far. The third thing that Jesus did was tilt the topic. Many people were being impoverished by these heavy taxes. Others were being crushed by the penalties. And a few people were growing rich by dishonest gain. And among Jesus' own disciples, you know where we're going with this, right? (laughs) There was a tax collector. I'm sure he was very uncomfortable with this whole conversation. And there was also a zealot, a patriotic zealot, which at that time, the word zealot was code for terrorist. So he'd been on the other side, and I'm sure, you know, he's like, like, I'm looking at you, Matthew. Eh. They're very interested in what's going to happen next. <laughs> right? Jesus had made it clear numerous times that obsession with money sucks us dry spiritually. Here in this gospel, Mark, Jesus, when he sent them out on their first mission trip, the first thing he told them was, take no money. I'm sure their jaws dropped. Are you kidding me? No money? Nope, don't take any money. Don't even take another pair of shoes. He told the rich young ruler all he needed to do at this point 
was sell everything he had and follow Jesus. Jesus had just finished cleansing the temple of the moneylenders. And we know that Jesus himself lived very simply. In other gospels, Jesus told stories about what happened to people who clung to their money. And I'm going to read you a few quotes. You'll recognize all of them. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus praised generosity in Luke. He said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Jesus encouraged people to trust God for their needs. Again, in Matthew, he said, Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In that same speech, Jesus warned about looking to money for security. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor trust nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus put, his, put money in its place when he delivered his famous teaching. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Money does have its proper place. Now, first century Christians really struggled with this issue. And of course, you guys know why. As soon as as it got to be known that they were Christians, then they were in trouble. Some lost their jobs. They couldn't go to the Agora because at the Agora, you had to make a sacrifice to Caesar. And if you didn't make a sacrifice to Caesar, you didn't get to do anything in the Agora. So how are they even going to get food? You, you understand now why in Corinthians, um, in the Corinthian letters, Paul talks about food sacrifice to idols. I mean, some of them were like, I just don't know what to do. I guess we'll just make the sacrifice and eat that. They were in a pinch. So the apostles continued to teach on Jesus' teaching, and they explained um, how to understand what Jesus was saying. So Peter said, for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution. Paul summed it up a little differently. He said, believers rendered to all what is due them. And the longer, uh, that's in Romans 13, by the way, the longer verse says, render to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, respect to whom respect is due, fear to whom fear is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Now, every believer has a dual citizenship. It's just true. You're a citizen of the country you live in, and you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. So even when our government doesn't govern the way we feel is wise or good, or even honest, I think we all have struggled with various leaders. It still regulates and stems crime. That's what Paul said. It still promotes the public welfare. Dave and I were talking about this, and we agreed it's, it's probably better to have a government than to have no government. So you and I pay our taxes. It's just what we do as Christians. We do that because that's what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. We're mindful of laws and rules. We uphold them as best we can. We're involved with the process of public policy because even by voting here in the United States, we're rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus even 
paid his temple tax. He was the Lord of the temple. He was the Lord of the Sabbath, and even he paid his temple tax. Of course, I love it that he got his money from fish. But, you know, regardless, <laughs> he, he, paid, he paid his tax. And we have responsibilities, and we fulfill our responsibilities as well. As believers, we have integrity that way. That's one of our distinctives. It's one of the ways people figure it out. Oh, that person must be a Christian because they're honest in their labors. They do what's right, even though it's at a personal cost. It's just what they do. Even when they don't agree with the people in authority over them, they're still respectful of them. That guy must be a Christian or that woman must be a Christian. I don't know how they do it. They do what they know God requires of them, and, and still they're conscientious about performing their civic duties. They're, they're pretty amazing. But my question is, how consistent are you and I in being ethical, keeping integrity, upholding what we know is right, being respectful of authority, even though we don't really agree with them? It's, it's a good question to ask from, from time to time. But now let's get into the truth that was underneath that teaching. Because that's a familiar teaching, isn't it? You guys were like, oh, she's going to talk about the taxes thing. I know what Jesus said about that. We're going to have to pay our taxes. Mm. And that comes right here in April. Doggone. All right, well, we'll just do it. Like, no surprises there, right? And the truth is, that was a great answer what Jesus gave. But that's not why the delegation was drop-jawed. I mean, it was a clever twist. But that's not why they were utterly amazed. That's what Mark said. They were utterly amazed. That's not utterly amazing. Here's what is utterly amazing. What took their breath away is what Jesus said between the lines. Now, this is very Jewishy. We Americans, we don't like to read between the lines. I mean, we like people to be direct. Just say what you're going to say. Don't make me try and guess what it is. But it's very Mediterranean to have layers in what you say. And there were layers here. Here's how he did it. Now, you guys read the Bible. I know that. But let's say you had a tough Bible question. You're like, man, I just don't even know. Who would you ask? Don't say it, but just somebody pops in, popped into your head, right? Like a Bible person. Oh, oh, yeah, I'll ask that person. They'll know. The Pharisees were those people. The Pharisees, it was their career to know what was in the Bible. They could quote whole swaths of it, no problem. They knew their Bible. And because it's what they always thought about, and because they knew it so well, there were phrases that were like, and they'd immediately go to that place. A famous trigger is when Jesus quoted the first line of a psalm when he was hanging on the cross. That was a trigger. The whole rest of the psalm would have come to mind if you had heard him say those things. So he said a trigger here. And what was the phrase? He said, whose image is on the coin? That was a trigger phrase. And we find that out when we flip back to Genesis, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And we find that phrase is in God's mouth. Then God said, let us make humankind our image according to our likeness. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. Do you see how often the word image comes up in that? That's where their minds went. That was a trigger phrase. Just as kings put their own image on their coinage, so God put his image on every person. That means everything about you and me, all that we have, all that we are, 
rightfully belongs to God, even the coins with Caesar's image on them belong to God. So if this is triggered in your mind, and Jesus says, well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but render unto God what is God's, boy, that puts you in a tough place again, doesn't it? Oh, boy, it's not an easy answer after all. It isn't just a pay your taxes answer. In Jesus' day, land was often leased with the agreement that the owner would be given a set amount of harvest. That meant, you know, like, I'll, I'll give you this cornfield, you, you can have it, and I need six bushels of corn off it, and if that's all it ever yields, then you'll just be poor that year because I'm going to get my six bushels of corn. That was the deal. The lease was given for life as a rule. And sometimes the lease could be hereditary, which is interesting. It would pass from father to son of the tenants. Do you get where I'm going with this? Okay. If the owner had no heir, then the tenants would end up owning the land themselves. You getting a little about that vineyard story that Jesus talked about? Why they wanted to kill the son? Because they thought God would observe their human tenancy laws. Okay. God had leased the earth to human beings. He had given Israel to the Jews. The religious rulers were the tenants. They were the leaders. They would have it for a long time. But ultimately... Judah, Israel, and the whole earth is God's. Human beings are his tenants. And though we have human authorities over us, it is God himself who is the ultimate authority. That's why we have such a pinch. Now, both Peter and Paul, remember I told you, they they continued to teach on Jesus' teaching. And they said, you're to observe human authority. You're to give respect where it's due. Remember that thing that I told you from Romans 13? You can go look it up uh, if you'd like to. Um, Render all these things that you're supposed to render. But Peter and Paul also acted on the truth that God is the ultimate authority, even though they'd said all this other stuff. Peter and Paul ended up in prison numerous times because they broke the law. They broke the law by speaking about Jesus because They were obeying God over and above human authority. They faced painful consequences. This required a lot of sacrifice, what they did. It would have been easier, actually, to just obey the law. But they insisted on rendering to God's what was God's, no matter what. Here's how Peter said it. He said, believers obey God over human authority. For you and me who believe in Jesus, we're also citizens of heaven. It is our lifestyle to give all of ourselves to God, to be mindful of God's word, which we're called to uphold, and to be actively involved in the life of his body, the church. So in rendering to God what is God's, we actually give everything we are and have to him for his glory, for the good of all that he loves, and ultimately for our good as well. So my last question is, what does my life and what does your life reveal about how deeply we believe and live by that truth? So the middle part, the teaching part, that makes us feel good. There's a, yeah, there's a rule I can follow. There's a formula I can use. Okay, I'm good to go. But the truth underneath opens the question all up again. And it requires you to go from the word to God himself. 
God, please help me understand what your word means in this situation right now to me. It's harder to live by. So how do our lives reveal that we actually live by that truth? So that's, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Let's have a benediction and go into this beautiful day that God's given us. Oh, God, how good you are, how thankful we are for you, and how thankful we are that you give us life and that you give us opportunity to glorify you even in tough situations. It's hard to say thank you for the tough stuff, but how glad we are that when you test us, you find yourself there. Oh, God, purify us, we pray. Amen.